So uh, this morning we are going to pick up in our series of messages called Heavenly Host. The first part of the series had to do with the pre-Adamite uh, era. The second part of the series had to do with a heavenly hierarchy. And this morning we are going to cover lots more. I am not ignorant. It is not lost upon me that this morning is Palm Sunday. Uh, and if you wanted to cut palm branches and have the children come in and sing songs, I'm sorry. It's not going to happen today. Nor are we going to participate in the liturgical writings that tell us what to do every day of the week for 40 weeks before Easter and then act excited to hear the same message that you hear every year on the same day at the same time. We're just not going to do it. Instead, we're going to be obedient to what we believe God has shown us. Having said that, every year it's worth remembering that this week is the week of His triumphal entry. This year is, or this week is the week of His crucifixion. Of His resurrection. As you begin to study that this week and Wednesday and next Sunday, we will get into that some more. I want to tell you right out front, Good Friday does not appear on our church calendar because there is no such thing. John 19.31 would be a good scripture for you to look into this week. Matthew 12.40 would be another good scripture for you to look into this week. Good Friday is a Roman myth that has come down to us and is one of the many things that has been taught incorrectly so long that it is simply assumed as fact. And it's not. And it's not right. The answer to this week is the Jewish feast calendar. And as you look into it, it will all become clear. This morning what I want to do though is take a look at our Heavenly Host series. I need to review with you a couple things so that you will know where we're at in our process. First, as we look at a pre-Adamite world, you remember that in Genesis 1, the words bara and asa were two Hebrew words. One meant to create, another meant to make. In Genesis, it's very clear from the account that some things were created out of nothing, while other things were made. Then in Genesis 1-2, now the earth was formless and void. That word is haya. The NIV translates it as was or possibly became. 60 some, 60 some odd other times it's translated became. I am of the opinion that God created everything that has ever existed or ever will exist. And in Genesis 1-2, we pick up after a judgment that occurred by water. And what we have is a story of a recreation in six literal days. Uh, as you reflect on that, there is water on the earth, there is darkness on the earth, before we ever began the days of creation or light and darkness separation and the 24-hour time periods as we know them called days. Uh, we can't teach the whole thing again, but it is worth noting that when man was put on the earth in Genesis 1.28, he was given the task of subduing the earth. Something was already here when man was put here that needed to be subdued. The writer of Corinthians, Paul, begins speaking about Jesus in terms of a second Adam. The first man, Adam, the federal head of the human race, did not bring everything into subjection to God. Instead, he himself became a slave. The one who is called to liberate the earth becomes a slave. The second Adam the federal head of the spiritual race is bringing all things in heaven and on earth into subjection to our God, restoring a perfect order to the universe. As we began to look at heavenly hierarchy, we looked at Exodus 25 and we found out that Moses saw into the heavenlies from a mountain and he built things on earth according to that pattern. We moved through to Hebrews 8.5. We found out that everything that existed on earth in the form of a temple and a priesthood and all of those things was merely a shadow and a copy of something that existed in heaven. Which raised the question, why on earth would there have to be sacrifice and a priesthood and a temple in the heavens? We further looked at seraphs and cherubim and Melchizedek and 24 elders, and I don't want to go through it all, but I do want to mention to you that seraphs were called burning, fiery ones. And that more than once, in fact, more times is the word seraph in Hebrew translated burning, fiery snake than does it show up as 
seraph. So in Isaiah only, there are heavenly creatures hanging between heaven and earth, speaking a message of holiness, communicating between God and man, and even making atonement for Isaiah by way of fiery coals. But every other place that that shows up in the Bible, every other place that that word appears, they're flying, fiery serpents. Then we moved through to cherubim and we saw they were very similar to seraphim. In fact, sometimes it looks like they're almost indistinguishable. Except cherubim always have to do with the presence of God and His throne. As we saw the 24 elders, we saw that they were above the sea of expanse. Something that was next to the throne, worshiping God day and night. Well, tonight, I want to pick up, or today, with angels and accusers, the next part of our series. And not only are we going to cover that, we're going to touch on archangels. We're going to touch on Satan theories. We're going to touch on fallen angels. But the whole emphasis of our message today will be on the now newly condemned. So turn with me then to 1 Chronicles. Tell me when you're in the 21st chapter, and if you don't talk to me this morning, I will not do well. So for my benefit, stay away and speak to me. Amen? Amen. Oh, wow. See, I'm soliciting amens now. Amen? Mandy's there. Where are the rest of you? There. 1 Chronicles 21. This morning you're going to get a tour through the entire Bible. We'll cover as much of it as we can. Uh, take notes. If you can't keep up, that's okay. I will quote it to you. And I don't think I've lied yet this year about a scripture. <laughs> Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Uh, you know what this says in the Hebrew? It says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. It says exactly what it says in your English Bible. There's no strange translation issues here. There's nothing difficult, nothing too hard for us to understand. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. You'll be hanging a left in your Bible. In 2 Samuel, starting in the 24th chapter... Darnell's there. As we begin to turn here, please don't read. Give me your attention. This morning you're going to hear some things that challenge traditional thought. I hope that doesn't surprise you. Nearly everything about me challenges traditional thought, and I know that. I'm going to ask that you do something. That you not be so immature in our understanding and our love for Jesus that you cross your arms angry and leave the service without actually leaving. Don't tune me out. You're going to be challenged with something that you may never have heard. And at the end, we're still going to fellowship. We're still going to love Jesus. And I will not require that you agree with me. How about that? It's not going to be inscribed upon our wall and you have to touch it or genuflex to it or kiss it or love it or anything else. It will not be something that you have to sign to be admitted into our church. It's simply something that because God called me your pastor... I'm asking that you consider. And maybe, just maybe, occasionally, I'd get something right that might benefit you. Even if it's not what mom and dad believed, or their parents, or their parents before them. Because God knows if your mom and dad knew it, and your grandparents knew it, and their grandparents knew it, it must have been right. Well, what do we do with the 1,600 years the world did not get a chance to read the Bible in their own language? What, what about what mom and dad believed? What about what grandma and grandpa believed? Friends, I'm only interested in the Word and I don't want to insult anybody's religious heritage. But I really don't care what anybody believes other than what the Word says. I don't have a monopoly on it. I don't always get it right. I'm working it out with fear and trembling and I urge you to do the same. You ready for 2 Samuel 24? Yes. 2 Samuel 24, again, the anger of Yahweh of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying go and take a census of Israel and Judah it's almost as if there was a mistake made in the scripture when you look at those Bible difficulty books about hard sayings this one's usually in it and fortunately for us, you cannot blame this on a translation issue, or they would. In this account, it says the Lord incited David. In the other account, it said Satan incited David. 
How on earth do we explain something like that? Are the Asian cultures right? Does God have a positive and a negative uh, side to him? Is he a schizophrenic? One side uh, holy, the other side evil? Not hardly. But our theology does not allow for something like this. Our theology usually says that before man was ever here, Satan fell from heaven and that Jesus watched it like a lightning bolt and that he was an archangel and that his body was made of beautiful pipes and he was a choir leader in heaven and an archangel. I looked before I got up this morning at the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. It is amazing. Under the term Satan, when you read, it says almost verbatim what I just told you. You know what it does not have? More than three Scripture references. Why? How did that happen? And how do you explain something like this? I'm going to submit to you an idea this morning that is difficult to deal with at first, and I'm just going to ask that you follow me. Both are true. The Lord incited David... And Satan incited David because at this point in history, they're on the exact same team. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't provide you with hymnals or Bibles to throw at me. <laughs> Pastor, what on earth could you be saying? How could they be on the same team? You remember that the Scripture says that for the Lord a day is as a thousand years? Yes. If you don't remember it, you can read Psalm 90. Or you can read First Peter, whichever you like because they quote it. Isn't that beautiful? What looks like an eternity for us that God waited patiently to judge a rebellious celestial being, for Him was like a few days. And He is a mastermind. Watch what happens here. Look at Job 1. We're going to further this idea of the same team. Job. If you need a job, turn to the book of Job. Tell me when you're in Job 1. Mandy's there. Where are the rest of us? In Job 1, starting in the 6th verse, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Why not, if Satan was an angel, would it not say the archangel Satan came with them? We named the other ones. What is this name? You got a footnote there? Accuser. Accuser. The angels came and the accuser came with them. We need not read Satan as a name like Eric. Especially don't like those two to go together. <laughs> what we need to read Satan as is a functional title. The angels came and the prosecuting attorney came with them. Now watch. The Lord said to the prosecuting attorney, to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord. From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. That's interesting. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Whose idea was it to consider Job? God's. And what on earth if Satan is an enemy of God, cast down from heaven, fell like a lightning bolt to the earth, is God doing having a civil conversation with him? And how do you explain the previous two scriptures? Satan, or God, incited David to take a census. I maintain that they are working on the same side of things, and God has in his mind to expose Satan, but is not yet ready to do it. He's not been cast down. He's entering into the heavens freely. He's having conversations with the Almighty God. And he shows up with the angels, but there's no indication he's one of them here. It would be very easy for it to have said that if it was true. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that the flocks and herds spread out throughout the land. It sounds a little bit like a prosecuting attorney, doesn't it? Oh yeah, he looks good on the outside. But it's because of all the good things you did for him. If, if he didn't have those things, he would be guilty, 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 guilty. The accuser's job is to point out guilt. Not to create it. Not to tempt you to do it but to point it out. But look what God does. But stretch out your hand. This is Satan speaking to God. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. That's an accusation, isn't it? How are we going to know if it's true? Got to put him in that situation. 
Who has the authority to put Job in any situation? Let's see. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. Who put Job in Satan's hands? God did. Satan suggested that if God would stretch out his hand, Job would curse him. Satan suggested that to God. God put him in Satan's hands. How do you account for that? It's almost as if Satan is working on God's payroll at this time. Did you hear that? Look at the 11th verse. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and surely he will curse you. Then down in the 12th verse, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. The same conversation occurs again in the second chapter. By the way, do you remember what the first task that happens to Job is? <coughs> Messengers come running in and they say, your livestock? The fire of God fell. It's verse 16. The fire of God, not an attack of some evil entity, the fire of God fell and consumed them. So what we have is a discussion between two people that I maintain are working on the same company side, if you will. One is in charge of the other. God is the Father, the Creator of all things that have ever existed. He knows because he's very, very, very smart that Satan is a bad apple. But he has not yet exposed him heavenly. So he's having conversations with Satan. And Satan is showing up in the heavenlies. How weird is that to us? It feels strange. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament do you find Satan ever presented as an enemy of God. In fact, in Zechariah 3, he shows up again. And he's standing there with a guy who's a high priest named Joshua. It's another word for Yeshua. And he wants to bring accusation against him. And the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. Not the Lord crush you. Not the Lord burn you up. Not the Lord throw you out. The Lord rebuke you. Satan, that's not going to happen. Shut up. Sounds like a boss talking to an employee. Not today. It's not going to happen. Those are the only three references to Satan in all of the Older Testament. How much time period does the Old Testament span? At least 4,000 years. At least from Genesis 1-2 to the cross is at least, no less than, has to be at least 4,000 years. That is quite the time frame. By the way, from this, what I'm hoping that you're going to get is that Satan is a prosecuting attorney and that he may have some association with fire. Because in Zechariah 3, there's fire involved. Here in Job, there's fire involved. It's probably time for a little note about angels and archangels. Hebrews 1.14, I'm going to quote to you. It says that all angels are ministering servants sent to serve the heirs of salvation. If there is an angel anywhere, he works for the saved. His job is supposed to be that he does what we pray that He carries out the will of God in our lives. They are servants for the saved. Secondly, archangel is only mentioned twice in all of the Bible. Isn't that strange? You ever gotten a chain email or had a brother tell you a story about picking up a hitchhiker and they said, the angel, the archangel Gabriel, the trumpet is at his mouth. Man, that one used to float around all the time. Gabriel is never called an archangel in the Bible. There are no archangels named in the Bible beyond Michael, period. Now, 1 Thessalonians mentions the word archangel. It says, with the voice of an archangel in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. But it doesn't name him. Jude 9 actually names Michael an archangel. It's the only place in all of the Bible that it exists. Does that surprise you? As much as people talk about it? Now, it's true. Michael's called the chief prince. And Daniel 10.13 says he's only one of the chief princes. So it's possible that if prince and archangel are the same thing, that there's more than one. But they're certainly not named. Would it surprise you that you could go to a Catholic bookstore right now and buy a book that names them? That names multiples of angels. And that the names of those angels has changed throughout the centuries. One pope says it's this, another pope says it's that, and yet they're infallible. How interesting. When we change our mind, we simply call it a new Vatican, right? Saints, my goal is to strip away anything that may have been taught us that is wrong. And to be able to do that, 
we need to reconsider some things. If every image of an angel that you ever saw is a guy that is beautiful and flowing long Viking-like hair and fiery blue eyes and giant bird-like wings, do you know that that never existed anywhere in history among Christians or Jews until after the 4th century? There are no paintings of angels with wings on them before the 4th century. You know what they did? They painted them as men. Because in the Bible, they look like men. You will never find an instance where an angel, somebody called an angel, is described as having wings. Sometimes they get burning skin. Sometimes they fly. But they're never shown as wings. Most people that study art think that wings showed up despite their lack of biblical account to be able to distinguish between men and angels. We probably ought to get to the granddaddy two scriptures of them all so that we can move on to something very edifying. People not only say that Satan was an archangel and that he fell, but it's taught widely that he has a name and that his name is Lucifer, which interestingly enough means morning star or light bearer. Two terms repeatedly applied to Jesus. I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time especially with a Latin name for an, somebody that predates Latin. Turn with me to Isaiah 14. Anybody ever read Isaiah 14? Raise your hand if you've read Isaiah 14. Well, that's good. won't be the first time you've heard this then. Say, why on earth on the week of the Passion, on the week of the Triumphal Entry, would Eric talk so much about Satan? Ooh, I hate to even mention his name. You ever heard that? <laughs> because where we end is with you understanding exactly where his place is now. And it is beneath your feet. Beneath your feet. You need to understand the reason I covered the pre-Adamite world first. The reason I covered a higher archy of angels first is because it provides a motive. If there was a celestial being that had been here that predated man and wickedness was thought to exist in him but he was never judged for it and then something here as weak and as scrawny as a human being but looked exactly like God was placed in a garden you could be jealous. If your job was to facilitate communication between heaven and earth in a holy way, but this creature had direct access to God, walking with Him in a garden, had His ear every day, all day, you could be jealous. You might even want to murder somebody like that. In Isaiah 14, it's probably time to mention that Isaiah 14, starting in verse 3, 4... You will take up this taunt against... What's that word there? King of Babylon. Why doesn't it say you'll take up this taunt against Satan? Well, I don't know. I don't know, but what it does say is King of Babylon. Why don't we go ahead and pick up then in the ninth verse. The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world. Where was Satan and Job? Job, the oldest book, he was roaming in, in, in the earth, on the earth, and we saw him enter in heaven. You think it was the first time in Isaiah 14, 740 B.C., the first time he had ever been in the grave, if this was him? The abode of the dead, that word is shield. Satan had dwelt in the earth. But anyway, let's keep going. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who were kings over nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. Really, a celestial being has become like some dead guys? All your pomp has brought, down, brought you down to the grave. Along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. Do you know that based on that one verse right there about harps, the teaching spread during the medieval ages. By the way, a woman wrote a book in the Middle Ages that was a fictional novel. It's funny how fictional novels make their way into historical accuracy after a certain length of time. Where she described Satan as an archangel made like a harp with organ pipes on his back. I'll get to that scripture in a minute. Could it be that our 
forefathers who were denied the ability to read God's word simply heard a children's bedtime story and accepted it as fact so that when they read the word, they plugged the word into their pre-existing framework rather than having organically derived it from the text. If I tell you what to think about a verse over and over and over and you've never read it and then you read it the very first time, haven't I preconditioned you to a certain thought? You need to understand that happened during a time period called the Dark Ages when it was illegal to own a Bible in your own language. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. I always thought it was interesting that I was taught in church growing up Satan ruled this pit and that demons were uh, like his minions and they all existed in hell. Then I read the Word for the first time and I found out he's not there at all. In fact, hell as we know it doesn't exist right now. There's a place of torture, but the lake of fire we all describe, nobody's in it yet. That happens after a great white throne judgment at the end of a millennium. So I began to scratch my head and said, if that is not right, what else is not right? Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made a world a desert, who overthrew its cities, and who would not let his captives go home. All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out. It goes on and on and on. It's addressed to a man. It's called a man over and over. I would have an easier time saying that this scripture describes the Antichrist than I would saying that it describes a celestial being that we call Satan. We got all kind of funny names for him. Do you know that when Michael was contending with Satan over the body of Moses, Jude says, he simply spoke to him respectfully and said, the Lord rebuke you. Almost like somebody was speaking to a boss or somebody who outranked them. He didn't say, I'm telling you you can't do this. He simply said, the Lord says no. And he seems to have won the dispute. Isaiah 14 has named Satan for all of history as Lucifer. It has described an angelic being that has risen into the heavens and challenged God's throne and been cast down to the earth. If he was cast down to the earth at some time earlier, why do Chronicles and Samuel have him and God doing the same thing? Why does Job have him dwelling in God's presence, in it and out of it? And by the way, there's this nagging scripture in the New Testament that you may be familiar with that says, Simon, Simon! <coughs> Satan has asked that he might sift you. Can you imagine this? Daddy Bush, not Junior Bush, but Daddy Bush is at war with Saddam Hussein. So he sends, he sends uh, Schwarzkopf. We all like Schwarzkopf. He sends Norm over there, Storm and Norman, and says, hey, uh, he comes back and says, Daddy Bush, Satan has desired... Uh, Saddam, did I say Satan? Saddam has desired to sift your chief of staff. Is that going to be okay? Will you turn your chief of staff over to Saddam for a while? Does that make any sense to you? But what if Satan's job all along has been as a prosecuting attorney and he has not been judged yet? This would explain how he moves in and out of God's presence. How he accuses brothers day and night. In fact, he may even have a motive for it. These guys you replaced me with? These things that look exactly like you, they don't act like you. Hmm. I think we probably ought to go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 is the granddaddy of all Satan's scriptures. And then we're going to talk more about Jesus. If you're looking for Ezekiel, it's best if you find Daniel. Two of you are there. The rest of you already given up on me? See, this is one of those sermons that if you tune me out halfway through, you're going to make me a heretic to all of your friends at the coffee pot. My goal is to stir up controversy, but to provide a solution to it, not leave you in the middle of the controversy. In Ezekiel 28, by the way, if we were addressing the king of Babylon, is there anything that we could gain from it? I mean, one time Jesus addressed Satan, but he was talking to Peter. So is it possible that 
that Isaiah, the spirit speaking through him, was addressing the king of Babylon, but also a power behind him? Of course it is. Same thing in Ezekiel 28. I'm just suggesting that you don't make your entire doctrine out of an allegory. If anything, what might you learn from it? That there's a demonic realm, there is an anti-God realm, where there are powers that would like to dethrone God. And sometimes they move and work among men like the king of Babylon, like the king of Tyre, or a man whose number will be 666. You ready for Ezekiel 28? Yes. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on a throne of a God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man and not a God. You know, he says you're a man and not a God here. He says it in verse 9. He says it throughout. You're a man and not a God. Have there ever been world leaders that thought themselves gods? What Roman emperor didn't? Both in the empire of Rome and in that universal church. Which leader ever didn't act and think that they were God? How about Egyptians? Did, did their pharaohs think they were gods? Yes. You show me an ancient worldwide kingdom and I will show you a ruler who thought and acted like he was God. This is addressing a man. But could we learn something from an allegory that is used here? Watch this. This is amazing. Start in verse 9. Will you then say, I am God in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of the foreigners. I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Say to him, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, and emerald. Chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. By the way, all of those appear in Revelation as a description of the heavenly bride. That can't be a mistake. This is a description of something that was created to be beautiful, to function, to work with God. This prophet is likening this kingdom that was ordained all authorities or ordained by God he is likening them to something that was created beautiful to function with God. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. Settings and mountings in the King James was translated pipes because they didn't know how to translate this word. They didn't have the knowledge of Hebrew that they needed to be able to do it in 1611 when King Jimmy had it translated. So that led to the idea that Satan had giant pipes growing out of his back and he was a heavenly choir leader. And it was popularized in a book. Right now, you can grab some seminary literature and it's commonly accepted based on that verse. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. If you were going to stretch and call Satan some celestial being based on that, what would you call him? Cherub. Cherub's distinctly different from an archangel. Uh, I'm going to upset everybody here because I know people thought that's where I was going. I personally don't think Satan was a cherub either. I think that what we're learning from this is that there is something that is going on in the heavenlies and Job 4.18 says that God charges His holy ones with error. And that in the heavenlies... There has been defections and they were judged. You're going to read about this, that this thing, whatever it is, is burned up. Watch this. From, uh, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. If we're speaking simply to the king of Tyre, apparently as sanctuaries that uh, he's being worshipped in. If we're speaking to a heavenly power, apparently it has sanctuaries 
that it's worshipped in. But whoever we're speaking to, Ezekiel is written between the 5th and the 6th century. When does this event occur? Well, theologians would tell you it occurred in times past. And he's simply likening this to this king. That this is Satan and that he's likening it. Then what is Satan doing in the presence of God in Zechariah 3? Because that's after this event. Do you understand the problem in chronology here? Watch what happens now. So I made fire come out from you and it consumed you. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you were appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. What was the guy destroyed with? Fire. Fire. Wow. See, when we covered this heavenly hierarchy, we look at a being that Hebrews thought was the top of the angelic realm called the seraph. And his name was a burning, fiery one. But he's also translated... Is fiery flying serpent. How would you describe a dragon if you had to? How would you describe that to a kid? Because it's kind of interesting to note that Revelation 12 calls Satan, the devil, an ancient serpent, and a red dragon all as synonymous terms. If I had to put my money on a celestial being and I'm not asking you to do it, I might put it upon the one that seems to be the highest in rank that was supposed to communicate holiness between heaven and earth that had to do with fire and flying serpents. What did he choose in the garden out of all the animals that could be chosen? A serpent. How did Job's first test come? Fire fell. Yeah. See, there is a picture that can be painted, and I'm not telling you that it's perfectly accurate. I'm telling you that it's definitely different than what's historically painted. Now we're going to move into what is absolutely historically accurate. Would you all like to do that? Yes. Okay. Start with me then with the idea of the role of the patsy. I want you to turn to Luke 22:31. While you're turning there, I want to talk to you because I have a limited amount of time here. Don't read 22:31. Let's think about this. If what Eric is saying is that Satan and God were on the same team, that God was aware that there was wickedness in him, but left it unjudged. For us, for thousands of years, but for God, a day is like a thousand years. This was like four days. Would you wait four days to catch the biggest embezzler of all time in your company? Would you wait for four days to be able to burn... I shouldn't say that man's name. To burn a large investment banker who scandalized most of the United States? Would you wait four days to burn him publicly in front of everybody and let everybody see this is the guy that stole your money? This is the guy who did it? It was not me. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I... uh never authorized this and I want the world to know he's responsible for it. Would you wait four days? How long do we wait for a serial killer to be put to death? Decades. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. He was aware of this. He knew about it. He watched it very closely. But look what happens. In the garden, Genesis 3, something is mentioned. Something is having tempted Eve. What tempted Eve? A serpent. You know whose name is never mentioned? Satan. In Genesis 6, angels defect from their heavenly positions. They cohabitate with women. And the book of Enoch actually says that these things taught human beings to cannibalize each other. And they ate human beings. It says in the 7th chapter of Enoch, which I'm not quoting as authoritative, it's just an interesting book. Verses 1-4, through four, that they also taught them drug use and witchcraft. They introduced things to, the, to mankind that was not good. Needless to say. But you know whose name is never mentioned in the sacred canon or outside of it? Satan's. Does that mean he wasn't behind those things? In fact, in all of the Old Testament, there is never a reference to anything negative that you can tie to Satan. You can simply say he was an accuser. However, there's a change coming. Are you in Luke 22, 31? Yes. I just didn't want you to think that I had made this part up earlier, so I was going to read it. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Who did Satan ask? It's an honest question. What is, it, what, what is the only other scenario in all of the Bible in which you can compare this to? If we're going to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, what is the only other scenario where Satan is standing before someone asking that somebody be sifted? So apparently nothing has changed in the relationship between Satan 
and God from Job to the beginning of the New Testament period. Because the same thing is happening. But you know what has not happened yet? The cross. There is a turning point in not just human history, but in the heavenly hierarchy coming. A point in which everything in heaven and on earth will be judged based on their reaction to something. Look at John 12 for me. We're going to stay in John for a minute. Is anybody beginning to think that there's a possibility I'm not insane? Okay. Good. Mandy's had a little head start on this. I've, I've been working this out since uh, 1997. Uh, I got this revelation sitting in a Greek restaurant because Greek food is how we should all study the Word. It's, it's amazing. And my pastor and I got so excited about it that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon we began speaking about it and we stood in the parking lot of Romans off of Essen Lane in Baton Rouge, Louisiana till 2.30 in the morning. Doing all of the, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? And an amazing thing happened. It made sense from beginning to end. When you find something that you think is a genuine revelation, you should not be able to make a list of pros and cons and not be able to eliminate the cons. One of the problems with our eschatology is that when you list the common theories, there are always these nagging scriptures that you don't know what to do with and you have to eliminate them. I look for things in the Word that are true from beginning to end. I'm not telling you that this is perfect. I'm telling you this is how I see it. You ready? John 12. Starting in verse 30. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Turn with me to John 16. Look at the 11th verse. 10th verse. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. If Jesus says twice in the Scripture... The prince of this world now stands condemned or I've come in and I am driving him out and it happens to be the week that he is going to the cross. Could you begin to surmise that something is going to change in the relationship of the heavenly beings? I think it's entirely likely that we could do that. Exodus 12, 12 lays down a pattern for us before we get into actually John 8 which is going to be the heart of our message here. Exodus 12, 12 says that on the same day that Israel was delivered during the plague of the firstborn dying, God judged all of the gods of Egypt. On the same day that Israel was delivered, the gods of Egypt were judged. I'm going to submit to you in just a minute the idea that on the same day you were delivered, the God of this world was judged. No longer any access to the heavenly throne room. No longer any chance to bring accusation against you. Shown to be defective and completely cast from God's presence. Are you in John 8? Yes. Good. In John 8, by the way, if you have this note that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through 8.11, you can stand up, shout, and jump for joy because although they didn't have it, you did. It's written in your Bible. It's contained in the Holy Canon for you right here before us now. So while they may not have found it in some places, you have it. And if God put it in your book, the one that you're holding in your hand, that you have held to be your sacred scripture all your life, why would you doubt it? Mm -hmm. Now, if you find out that there's something amazing about the content, and if the devil couldn't stop the whole book from coming, but could just shoot a dagger through one little section, what section would you aim at if you were him? Let's hear this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around Him. And He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, 
Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Did they want to accuse the woman? Not really. What was their motive? To accuse God's representative. I would submit to you the idea that what we find here in this story tells us a great deal about possible motivations for an accuser that accused mankind. He was not really interested in mankind being guilty. He had no real interest in seeing weak humans fall. His interest was in having a basis for accusing God. He wanted a basis for accusing God because he didn't like some of the decisions that God had made. Why are the Pharisees accusing Jesus? They don't like some of the decisions that he's made. So let's see how Jesus deals with this and guess what you could do from that. If you see how Jesus deals with something and he's the perfect image of God, he's the exact representation of his being, then what are you really seeing? How God would deal with it. Now, if I stretch so far that you're not with me, you understand how from Jesus' actions as an anointed man on earth perfectly representing God, we can then turn and say, wow, that's exactly what the Father would do in that scenario. And then surmise that if the Father was in that scenario, maybe he did it. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This is so meritless, not that the woman's not guilty, but we caught her in the act. How humiliating, right? So where's the guy? Because the law doesn't say you bring the woman only. It says you bring them both. But Satan has always dealt in half-truths. Did he really lie to Eve? He kind of mixed a truth with a lie. He said, Eve, did God really say? And Eve responded with something that God didn't say. He said, yeah. Uh, he said, don't... Uh, don't eat it and, and don't even touch it. God didn't say that. He said, don't eat it. He didn't ever say, don't touch it. But the moment now that she's reached out and touched it and seen that she didn't die, well, might be able to eat it and not die too. Maybe God was wrong. Satan worked through that snake to present half-truths, to have a basis to accuse God. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, by the way, before I get to this, if you want to put a note here, Jeremiah 17, 13 says what he wrote in the dirt. I get asked that question all the time every time we do this. Jeremiah 17, 13 will tell you what he wrote in the dirt. The day before, they have rejected Jesus as the spring of living water. He stood up in John 7, 37 and pronounced, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. They rejected him. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, If you reject the spring of living water, he will write your name in the dust of Israel as a testimony against you. Is it a surprise that he's writing in the dirt? Shouldn't be. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? When they came to condemn, He showed that they themselves were completely and utterly guilty of sin. So their accusation had no merit. Now if the Father was in a situation where somebody kept bringing accusation against you, He could judge you. Or he could examine the prosecuting attorney and see that he himself was completely and utterly sinful and dismiss all charges. Now, I tell you what, we see that Satan was in the presence of God in more than one occasion, two of the three occasions in the Older Testament. You see in the New Testament, in Luke 23, that he's still conferencing with God about Peter. But by the time we get to the book of Colossians, Colossians 1.22 says that you stand before God, free of spot, free of blemish, and free from accusation. So what changed from the time period that we're a week before the cross and some 60 years, 30 years, 35 years after the cross? 
How is it that Satan is before God a week into Jesus' uh, last, last week of Jesus' life, but 35 years after the resurrection when Colossians is written, you're now free from accusation? Evidently, something changed. Turn with me to Revelation 12. Now, you guys today don't have to drive to a restaurant. How long does it take you to get to a restaurant when you leave church? You'd probably stand in the parking lot and talk a while. Probably deliberate where you're going. Then you then you gotta get then you gotta get in the car and you gotta actually drive there. You gotta get the kids buckled in, take the kids out. And we don't have to do that today, because today's potluck. You in Revelation twelve with me? I'd wanted to read the whole chapter, but I think it's probably not necessary. Let's start in the seventh verse. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Is a dragon kind of like a fiery flying serpent? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not wrong about that, huh? My kid reads those books. and What's that book? Aragon? It's about fiery flying... Is that right, Judah? No? And the dragon and his angels fought back. Why the dragon and his angels if he was one of the angels. I suggest that in the heavenly hierarchy, if you have an archangel, which means high angel, that you must have angels beneath it. And that since there's only one named in all of Scripture, but these other things are named and they're around the throne of God and archangels aren't mentioned at the throne of God, that perhaps there's something to be derived from that picture. That perhaps whatever is at the top, up by the throne of God, communicating the holiness had something under it. Just like commanders of legions might. They're all answerable to Rome, but we all know from time to time they kind of did their own thing, didn't they? But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. He apparently attempted something that did not work. You ever read Corinthians 2.8? If the rulers, if the principalities had known what they were doing when they killed Christ, they would not have done it. Have you ever read that scripture? Ever wonder what that meant? The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent. You know how you say serpent in Hebrew? Seraph. Called the devil or Satan. Isn't that good that he clears that up? That serpent called the devil or Satan. We're talking about the same thing who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and His angels with Him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ. When did the salvation, the power, the kingdom of God and the authority of the Christ become available for you? At the cross. Why would we think this was any other time? Said, so, well, it's obviously a futuristic event. Well, that's bad news for us, huh? You got no kingdom, no salvation, no authority? Well, it was obviously an event that was millenniums past before man was ever here. Really? Then why were they waiting for Christ? For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by. The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. When did the blood of the Lamb become available? At the cross. And they did not love their lives so much to shrink from death. Jesus' act of obedience gives Him the right as the fullness of God but in a human body to command everything in heaven on earth to get into obedience to God. Man's purpose on the earth has always been to bring everything in, in heaven and on earth in subject to God. We were supposed to subdue it. But when the original man submitted to those heavenly powers rather than exerted authority over those heavenly powers, can you imagine if Adam had said, it is written, or God has said, just like Jesus did? We would not have had this time period. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why rejoice, you heavens? 
No more access by that wicked embezzling employee. We've given him enough rope that he hung himself publicly. See, when, when he used a serpent and the serpent got judged, well, that's bad for the serpent, but not so bad for him. When he used the angels in Genesis 6 and they got judged, that was bad for them. I mean, Peter says they're in prisons held in darkness, but not so bad for him. Even if you want to go so far as to say that he tricked Cain into killing Abel, that's really bad for Cain, but not so bad for him. But he came personally to tempt the Son of God. He didn't send somebody to do it. It was the end of the patsies. He may have thought that he got Pilate or the Romans to kill Jesus. But because he came personally and worked against him personally, he's now caught. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. From the cross forward, his time is short. There is open warfare in the heavenlies. 1 John 3 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This would no longer be tolerated. It would no longer be looked the other way. It is now, I am calling you out. The dividing line is in the sand, and it's time to get it on. Time to step on his head. So what does he do? Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Anybody want to guess who that is? Israel. Has he pursued Israel? More than any other nation on the planet. More than any other nation on the planet, Israel has suffered wrath. Is it a mistake that every European nation has thrown them out at some point? Is it a mistake that people in the name of Christianity, a.k.a. Hitler, with the help of a worldwide state religion, put to death six million Jews? It's no mistake. Especially if you find out that we cannot finish God's plan of salvation without the natural children of Israel. I want to move to something. Turn with me then uh, to Job 9 promise we're going to close here in just a second. If you prefer the translation or the idea, the correct interpretation that the woman is not Israel but is Eve, you're going to quickly find out they're the same thing. It's the hope of all righteous women. It's that promise that came through them all. If you prefer the church, you need to go back and look and see what the church is. There is no church without Israel. Are you in Job 9? Yes. Alright, because I'm going to talk to you about something besides Job 9. What about that scripture that says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning? What about that? Well, it means that it was known but not dealt with. It meant that God was not unaware of his activity. He was waiting for the proper time to expose him. Especially since Ephesians 2 says that the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed to the heavenly powers. Have you ever read the scripture in Peter that said even angels long to look into these things? See, there are things that in the heavenlies they don't know and they're watching to see how it plays out for people on the earth. I want you to consider something before we move to the next little what about scripture. If this guy was the top of the food chain, I don't care whether you believe he was or not, but if he was, and if there are also cherubs, and there are also archangels, and there are also elders, and there are also angels under that, the thing you need to know most is in Christ, we are above them all. So if there was something there that was not holy, if there was any chance for there to be some envy, if there was any possibility that they were not pure in their desires before God, who would their anger be directed at? But our God upholds us. He chooses the lowly things to confound the wisdom of the wise. And He will catch the wise, do you remember this scripture? In their own craftiness. Job 9, I want you to hear this. Even if I... Verse 30. Tell me when you're there. Job 9, 30. Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Does that sound pretty discouraged? That's pretty discouraged. Is there anybody here that has ever felt discouraged like that? 
felt like your very best was, I don't know, say filthy rags? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. Can you imagine what it must have been like that every time you tried to get a heavenly audience, every time you tried to turn your face towards heaven and speak with your creator, there was another celestial power there who was pointing out everything that you had done or would do, and maybe he wasn't even always telling the truth. Maybe he put you in the worst possible light in every story. Maybe it was actually him who tempted you to do the very thing that he's now accusing you of. Were you ever in a circle in high school and everybody said, hit him, hit him, yeah. hit him? Oh, yeah. And you screwed up and did it? Yeah. And then when you were picking up your teeth and your life and your self-esteem off the ground, everybody goes, why did you do that? Yeah. yeah, I was there more than once, actually. <laughs> Job's discouraged. Listen to see what he cries out for. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job is crying out for what Paul told Timothy in the second chapter and 15th verse. We have. A mediator who has laid his hand both upon God and man. He's communicating between the two. That could make you angry if you used to have that job. Mm. Communicating holiness between heaven and earth. Saints, when you contemplate this, you need to understand. If there's a prosecuting attorney, there is also something else. Who do attorneys argue before? A judge. And in our legal system, which is based on the Jewish legal system, isn't that beautiful? The actual group of people that God intended for us to learn from their culture and their ways. You can't have a prosecuting attorney and a judge without something else present. A counselor. We have a counselor, the scripture says. An advocate. He's laid his hand upon our shoulder and God's and he's making peace between the two. You know what we don't have in our heavenly courtroom anymore? A prosecuting attorney. He got thrown out. And you know what else? If you study the situation a little further, you find out you're related to the counselor. He adopted you. He's your older brother, but he's also a little more than that because he happens to be the son of the judge. Friends, we have no reason to be discouraged. We've been credited with righteousness with nobody there anymore to say we are not righteous. While man may have been put in a nearly impossible situation in the beginning, given a garden but told to subdue things that were more powerful, more ancient, and smarter than him, God, he must have really had to rely on God. He failed. Now we're put in a situation in which you cannot fail. Somebody else has already been so obedient to God that He credits you with what's left over. His credited righteousness. And there is no one left to bring accusation before the judge. So what do you really have to do then? Whatever your counselor tells you to do. I didn't read you the end of John 8. You know what he told the woman? Woman, where are they who condemn you? Nowhere, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. It's not that we've been pardoned. It's that it's been declared a mistrial. You're not even allowed to be put on trial anymore. All you have to do is leave your life of sin. Whatever was jealous of you before, how jealous do you think he is now? Of all the things that Adam was, he was not glorified and in the body of Christ. And we all shall be. Saints, we have such a high call. Whether you agree with me or not about the origins of Satan, whether you agree with me or not about half the things that we said today, you know what you cannot disagree with me about? The same Scripture that says that the prince of this world will now be driven out says, I give you authority to trample upon every power of the enemy. Every single one. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that you cannot bring into subjection to God's will. Hebrews says we don't presently see it, but we do see Jesus who's done it 
perfectly. As we close, golly, what about the connection between Isaiah 14 and Luke 10.17? Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus sent out His disciples. He said, I give you authority to trample on every power of the enemy. And you know what? They came back and said, even the demons submit to us. He said, I know, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Why would you assume that that was thousands of years before? He just told them to do it. And they did. You know what happens every time you advance the kingdom of God? The prince of the power of the air loses his dominion in those people's lives and in that area never again to regain it. It's as if he fell like lightning. Right then, right there. It was not done in eons past. It will not be done in eons future. It's done with you every time you become obedient to God and teach others to do the same. Says there's a message in that before. Maybe we're so comfortable with our fairy tale theology because it never involves us actually doing anything. The power to cause Satan to fall like lightning is in your hands right now. He's on the earth. He knows his time is short. He's at war with you. Are you at war with him? This week is the week of our Lord's Passion. We're going to cover it in more detail. But the reason that it heated up the way that it did is there was a first-class stepchild-like whipping that occurred before all of the heavens. And Satan was cast from heaven because of the obedience of the Lamb of God. When we come back together Wednesday, we will be speaking about the cross, the authority to trample, and the obedience of God. When we come together Sunday, we will be celebrating what He's done. When we come together the Wednesday after that, we will consider the great sulfur stew that has been cooking for millennia. Y'all stand to your feet.